You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. All right, why don't we get started? Uh, well, friends, uh, what I do, uh, is it, is this your, is it, if this is your first time at Week in the Way, can you just give us a wave? Fair few, that's great. Who's been here since the very first Week in the Way? Not bad. Okay, so it's, it's a pretty even split. And as you'll know, year to year, we grow as a church family. And as we grow as a church family, we want to take key moments, just like a Week in the Way, to stop, breathe, take stock of who we are as a church, where we're at as a church, and cast a vision forward as we open our Bibles to see what we might be going forward. Uh, I, I was not apparently given a, a note section, so that's okay. I'm, I'm not bitter about it. You can uh, take notes in the additional note section at the back of your booklets, uh, and there will be an opportunity to ask questions later. Um, I understand that people, not many people have put questions in the bag. That's perfectly fine. You'll have a t- chance in between this talk and then to do that. You can also, if you don't mind me knowing your number and knowing it's you, you can also text them to me if you can get through. Um, so what, what are we talking about today? At last year's Weekend Away, we, we took a, an opportunity to step back and ask this question. As a church, how do we love one another through change and growth? Uh, this was us last year. We, um, was it? Yes. Oh, that's on. Yes. Uh, this was us last year, and we asked a big question. What does it look like to love one another through change and growth? Well, we had started off as a launch team of 24 people, over three years growing to a uh, church, of two, two and a bit years growing to a church of about 80 to 120 people. And what we realized very quickly was, gosh, we, we love each other so deeply, but why does loving one another feel so much harder now than it did when we were 60? And so we asked that question, we, we asked that question, and what does it look like to love one another through change and growth? And we said, well, loving one another at 190 people is no less different or no less good in one sense than from loving one another at 90 people or 80 people. But love has to look different. The way in which we do these relationships look different. And so what I want to do today is to actually pause this year and think about something else. How do we love one another not through the growth of our church in size, but the broadening of our church in who's part of our church family. What does it look like for us to not just think about the size of our church, but to think about the breadth of our church? And as we expand in the number of people and the sorts of people that are in our church family, what does it look like to do this well together? A bit of history. In 2018, we started as a launch team of just 24 people. Let me tell you a few things about us at that time. No one was married. Everyone was either a uni student or a young worker. Almost everyone was from an Asian-Australian background. Interestingly, as an anomaly in the Western church, we had more men than women. Importantly... At that time, no one was over the age of 30. No one, not even me. I was like, no one was over the age of 30. We didn't have a children's ministry. We were a children's ministry. And, and, and in many ways, it was really easy for us to love one another in that 
because there was so much sameness and, and the sameness allowed us to say, yes, we're one in Christ, but you know what? We're one in all these other things as well. And that makes it so easy, so natural, so seamless to love one another, to do church together. But I wonder if you've noticed a few things have changed. Over the last five years, actually, a lot has changed. I'm not going to talk about the size. That's apparent. You all know that. But let me give you a few more other stats. Uh, We've rebalanced. Now there are, in accordance with the Western world, slightly more women than men in our church. We have a greater and growing proportion of people from not an Asian Australian background. It's gone from 0% to 11%. We're getting there. Uh, We are older. Now, if you've been here from the beginning, and you look around at the people who've been here from the beginning, check out their waistline or their hairline. It's just not what it used to be. (laughs) But at the same time, we've also been blessed to have different types of people join our church. We've been really blessed in particular to have a growing group of people over the age of 60. That's been a really big blessing on our church. Uh, It's now at 8%, again from zero, we're getting there. But it's growing and it's heading in the right direction. That's a real blessing for us. We actually only ever expect that to increase. That's a good thing. But I also want to say that with the passage of time, with aging comes other life changes. Uh, firstly, if you were with us uh, when, and, uh, uh, at the beginning or along the way, and you were single then, and you're still single now, actually, you'll realize that singleness looks different at different ages. Being single at 20, 30, 40, 50, they're all very different experiences. So even though your relationship status might not have changed, the way that you do life actually changes quite significantly. But secondly, we've gone from a church where we've had zero marriages And over the last, I've checked my red book of life. I've done 18 weddings so far. There's at least eight more to come that I'm aware of at least. And then there's, you know, all the other married couples who have joined our church from the outside. So think about this. Uh, This is family photo time, photo album time. Uh, What have we got? There we go. Wedding number one. When I first did this, my hand was trembling because I'd never done a wedding before. And, and how soon mocked me after. He said, I saw your hand, bro, you're just trembling. You're just so scared because, you know, there's always a next Sunday. There's no next that, right? So it was, it was very stressful. Not anymore. Um, then we... <laughs> it's a bit pixelated, but maybe for a reason. Anyway, Paul and Rainer, theirs was in lockdown, so we didn't really get any photos that we could put up. Tim and Jung. Uh, How and Ali. I don't know why these are pixelated, Okay. Like, it just happened. Uh, Cedric and Holly, that, that shadow in the background is me. Uh, 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 Leonard and Ray, uh, again, I'm creeping in the background. I'm trying to get out of frame in time for Jeb and Nat. Um, Joe should stand straighter. Uh, and, uh, John and Christine, uh, David and Cassie, Joe and Nams, good-looking Marcus over there. Maddie and Michelle, that's how, is, is that actually how you, where's Maddie? Is that actually how you propose? Okay, <laughs> okay, sure. Marcus and Sarah, if you can, it's a throwback. <laughs> uh, and more recently, Chewie and Sharon. It's been really, really special. We've, we've gone from having zero married couples to now being about at church 50-50. In fact, there was a new couple at church, they're engaged, Holly introduced them to me on Sunday, and they said, we're engaged, and I asked them, who's officiating your wedding? And they just looked at me and I said, just give me the date. Uh, (laughs) 
But I want to say, actually, that's not the biggest change. Because we're already seeing that happen last year. There is another change that's happening. It's the slow trickle of incoming children. We've gone from being a kids' ministry to now having kids. Think about this today. We've got Emmett and Josh, his father. Uh, <laughs> uh, we've got Elias, there you go, uh, the one on the right, uh, and, uh, and Israel Minjo and Ido. Uh, they're flying off to New Zealand today. They'd love to be here, but they're in New Zealand and then um, South Korea. But I want to say that this is just the beginning. It's a slow trickle that will very quickly turn into a tidal wave and a tsunami. Uh, they're coming. And, and my coach told me the other day, he said, Adam, as a church, you need to be ready. In five years' time, you must be battle ready to directly engage about 50 children in your church. I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. Now, if that's the case, we need to take stock and think. Forewarned is forearmed. We need to make decisions about our church today for the church that we want to be, not next year or the year after, but for the church that we want to be in 2030. We need to start with the end in mind, but not start at the end. So what does that look like? I think we need to be prepared to be a larger church. Right now it's about 200 people each Sunday. We need to be prepared to be a larger church with marrieds and singles, adults and children, men and women, old and young, a church that is as broad as it is big. Can I say what that means is we want to think about what it means to be a church for you and us together. So here's my question today. What does it look like for a broadening church family to do life together? What does it look like for us to be together in our difference and diversity? It was easy when we were just, you know, 24 people at my parents' place. It gets tricky and complicated and hard. And we need to think carefully about what we want to be. And here's my objective for today. I want to cast a vision for the culture that, Lord willing, we will have in 2030 and going forward. And I want to suggest that it's a culture of integration over separation. It's a church culture that says that in our difference and our diversity, we are actually better together. We're better together. So here's what I want to do uh, over the next half an hour. So it's okay. I, we will get there. Um, I want to start by looking very briefly at how churches have typically answered this question over the last half century or so. I want to suggest very humbly that I think is an inadequate response Maybe sub-biblical, we'll get to it. Um, and then I want to look at the Bible and propose what I hope might be a more biblically faithful way forward and flesh out what that looks like for our life together in a number of key relationships. So look at how churches have traditionally responded, look at the Bible, look at how, what we want in our church life. Make sense? Okay, here we go. Um, for the last 20 to 30 years, most churches have answered this question through the idea of specialized ministries for specific subgroups. Specialized ministries for specific subgroups. So we've got more people in church and more different types of people in church. So what do we do? We go, let's create the men's ministry, which never really works anyway, because you know guys just don't really do that. But let's create the men's ministry. We'll have a Saturday morning barbecue at 7.30 in the morning. I don't know who's awake, but that's okay. Uh, we'll create a men's ministry, a women's ministry, a kids' church, a youth service, a seniors group, a parents' gathering, a married small group, a singles network, which always exists to get you out for whatever reason. So, so what we do is we focus on what is different between us, and then we create ministry structures around those things. 
and we say, okay, well, here's your friends. If you're married, you'll hang out with the married people. If you're not married, you hang out with the not married people. If you're women, you'll hang out with women. If you're men, you'll hang out with men. And, and I want to commend that in one sense. I want to recognize at least that there are some strengths to it. There are some strengths to it. Firstly, it recognizes the diversity of the body. In our church family, there are lots of different types of people. And it acknowledges that no one ministry can serve absolutely everyone equally. It brings together people who are alike, and that does have its strengths. It does give us a more immediate sense of belonging when we're surrounded by a smaller group of people that are just like us. And it tailors our discipleship to the particular life circumstances of a young mum or an elderly man or a whole range of different life circumstances. I want to say that that is not wrong per se. It has its place. But I want to also suggest that if we adopt that as the primary strategy for how we do life together as a church, it's unwise. I think it's actually sub-biblical. I think it should be there as a tool, but not the norm. Why? I think it does a few things. Firstly, I think it actually overstates what divides us and it understates what unites us. The whole purpose of the church is that we're gathered in Christ, out of our difference, out of our diversity, together, so that we might be one in Christ. Secondly, it defines us by our age and stage. And it forms larger groups around that. Now, I'll tell you what will happen, and I've seen this happen. What ends up happening is the majority culture, which has its own ministry, ends up dominating everything else. And it's the minority groups, the smaller groups within any church that get overwhelmed and forgotten by that. But thirdly, I want to suggest it actually makes the fatal assumption of our age. It's the fatal assumption that identity politics actually makes, where it says only people who are like me can tell me how to live. It's the thought that says only an unmarried person can truly understand or help another single person. So if you're married, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to talk to me. It's the mindset that says every married couple can only be or should only be mentored by another married couple because no one else will know. It's, it's the mindset that says only men can speak into men's lives or only women can speak into women's lives. It's the mindset that says older people have nothing to learn from younger people or younger people will just be perpetually afraid of talking to older people. It's the mindset that says our children's ministry should only be run by parents because only parents can really care for kids. It is, it is, the, it is the air that we breathe that says only people who are like me can know me or help me. And I want to suggest that's actually... Not true. I want to say this is not true. You see, I think the specialized ministry approach, it does have its place where there are specific issues to address. There are issues that are particular to women. Issues that are particular to men. Issues that are particular to kids. That's why we have a kids ministry. It's developmental. So we want to think about where to use that specialized ministry wisely. But... When that specialized ministry becomes our general approach for the culture that we set, where we go, you hang out with the people who are like you, we'll create a special ministry for a new group of people over there. Actually, I think what happens is it divides what God unites. It divides what God unites. Because what unites us is the Lord Jesus. 
And when we gather in all of our difference and diversity, we actually make Jesus shine more brightly. Because people look at us and go, why in the world would you ever be together? Why would you talk to someone who's so different from you? Because of Jesus. That's what matters. And I want to propose a more biblical vision of church life. And it's centered on this idea called the household of God, the family of God. Now, the New Testament, it uses a whole range of metaphors to describe what the church is. The church is a body, it's a building, it's a bride, it's a flock. But the one I want to focus on right now is the church is a household. The church is a family. I hear this, 1 Timothy uh, 3, 15 to 16, I've written to you so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation, the truth. You see, the church is a family. And the point of the gospel is not just that we're saved out of sin and God's wrath, good though that is, but is that we are saved into a greater reality. We are adopted into the family of God. We are adopted out of being enemies and into becoming sons and daughters. Galatians 4 says, God sent his son, not there, but God sent his son, born of woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Or Jim Packer says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Depending on your background, we talk a lot about justification. That's good. But actually, the point of justification is our adoption, that we become members of God's family, sons and daughters of God. And you see, friends, it's just like Murray said before, through our union with Christ, because we're connected with him, all that is his becomes all that is ours. And the greatest thing that is his, that now becomes the greatest thing that is ours, is his status and our status as children of God. That's who you are. Whatever the world tells you about who you are, however it wants to define you by your ethnicity, by your age, by your stage, by what you do for work, it doesn't ultimately matter. We are who we are because Christ is who he is. You see, friends, in this family, God the Father becomes God our Father. Hebrews 2 says God the Son becomes Jesus our brother. And 1 John 4 says that the, God, the Spirit, becomes the love that binds us together. Did you see what this is? The household of God, the family of God, is knit together by the very same love that exists between the Father and the Son. Now think about that. We could not be more different from God, could we? God in His holiness and His splendor and His righteousness. And then there's us. Complicated. Sinful, broken, unholy. And you think to yourself, why in the world would a God like that adopt people like us? So different. You'd never imagine that God and that Adam together. And yet he does. And yet he does. But I want to say the spirit that binds the Godhead, the spirit that connects us with God, doesn't just connect us with God, it, he connects us with each other. The, think about that, right? The Father loves the Son, it's the greatest love in the world. Between that is the spirit of God who binds that love together. That same spirit binds us with the Son and the Father, but that same spirit binds us with one another as well. It's a, it's a totally otherworldly love. 
Now, you might think you're different from God, and why would God adopt you? But actually, I want to say, you never also expect him to adopt all of us into the same family, would you? Think about it. Uh, Ephesians 2 says, For he is our peace, who made both Jew and Gentile one, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jews and Gentiles, wizards and muggles, they just don't get along, right? But in this family, I want to say it's not just the difference between Jew and Gentile. There's more than just that, actually. If you look at Galatians, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free. What you do ultimately doesn't matter. Your station in life doesn't ultimately matter. Male and female, there's an awkward one for our age. Firstly, because it affirms that there is a male and female. But secondly, it relativizes it by saying it is not of ultimate importance. Why? You are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, God is not obliterating these distinctions. He's relativizing, relativizing them to say that they mean far less than the world will tell you. They may shape who we are. They may influence how we relate to one another. But they must not determine our relationships within God's family. Where am I going with this, friends? I'm saying, I think the approach of creating specialized ministries within a church runs against the grain of Scripture because it emphasizes what divides us rather than what unites us. But the risk of creating specialized ministries for every different subgroup in church is that within this household of God, we may just erect those very barriers and dividing walls that the gospel seeks to tear down. So as a church, well, the world is always going to push us in the direction of separation, emphasizing division, emphasizing animosity, emphasizing the, the antagonism between groups. But actually, as a church, we need to be pushing in the other direction. We need to be putting things together, uniting all things under Christ, Ephesians 1.10. We need to be working towards integrating old and young men and women, Jew and Gentile. Why? Because in this household of God, we're better together. We're better together. Well, what does it look like? I want to suggest, I want you to notice this. 1 Timothy 5.1. Look very carefully. Don't rebuke an older man, Paul writes to Timothy, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Now, I want to suggest that two dynamics go on here. Dynamic number one. Timothy should relate to people differently on the basis of their age, stage, and gender. Did, did you notice that? Let me go back. Um, you relate to him as a father, an older man. That, that, there's a way in which you relate to your father. Maybe it's not great, but you, know, you probably should better. Uh, but think about this. Young women are sisters with all purity. The, the manner of our relationships is shaped by who we are relating to. The second dynamic... Timothy should enjoy familial relationships of closeness and love with all people in God's family. Think about that. Timothy should enjoy familial relationships of closeness and love with all people in God's family. Why? Well, he's your brother. She's your sister. That means you love them. It means you care for them. Now, there's a particular way in which you do that. You don't love your brother and sister in exactly the same way. I suspect if you have a younger sister and you've got your dad, you would relate to them in rather different ways, I'd hope. You see, with that, though, I think there is a dual risk or temptation that we face. Here's what we are at risk of doing. Number one, 
emphasizing dynamic one at the expense of dynamic two. So we focus on what is different between us. So we go, okay, I saw what Paul said. I need to relate to them differently based on who they are, age, stage, gender. I'm going to emphasize that what is different between us, but in emphasizing what is different between us, I'm going to take a step back from those relationships and just not really engage with them at all. There's an older man at church. Don't really know how to talk to him. Why? He is an older man. (laughs) I'll respect him from a distance. I will not have that. But there is another risk, isn't there? That we emphasize dynamic two at the expense of dynamic one. That actually we say, well, we should have these close relationships of intimacy and love, but we, we embrace them naively and foolishly. It's, and it becomes love without honor. So, so, old and, so what ends up happening is men and women behave to one another in close and intimate ways, but in inappropriate ways. Or we speak to older men as if, I was talking to someone a while ago, and I said, hey, hey, mate, like, if you were to talk to an older man at church, would you just call out his sin, or would you think about how, how you do it well and communicate it well? And he said, why should I have to? We're brothers in Christ. I'm like, maybe. He's actually also kind of like your father in Christ. There is a way in which you relate to him that should be different from how you relate to a younger brother and younger sister. The relationships that we have here are not Jesus and flat relationships, as it were. No, actually, Paul's saying that there is a kind of structure in order to the way that we relate to one another. So we need to hold both those dynamics together, dynamic one and dynamic two. But I want to name it. Actually, today I want to caution against the risk of, of caution us against risk one, which is that. Which is to say uh, that we emphasize the differences that we have. And so never engage with each other at all. I want to actually say we need to be a church which shows that through our difference and diversity in Christ, we are better together. That we, yes, we are different. Yes, there's that older guy over there. But actually, he's my older brother, as it were. He's like an uncle at church. I grew up at a church where we'd call people uncle and auntie. I know that was a kind of Asian church background thing. Can we bring it back? I'll tell you why. I know... Certain older people from other cultures hate it. But actually, I think it's a really good thing. I think it shows honor. I think it makes you do two things. I think if there's an uncle or auntie, I relate to them very differently. I don't go, hey, Alfred, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I, I, will, I will give him the honor that is due to him. But actually, in calling him uncle as well, right? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I will, I will, um, there is a closeness there as well. His family. There there should be a right sort of intimacy there. But I think what happens is if I just barrel up to someone and treat them with no respect, that's actually not good. But also, if I don't see him as my uncle, I don't see Auntie Wendy as my auntie or other people as, as my brothers and sisters, what ends up happening is you're just some other person at church. I think we there's something healthy about that. Maybe it's the Chinese church background in me talking, but I think there is something healthy. Because actually, it helps us see we relate to one another differently. I'm going to zoom through this now. I want to go through four sets of relationships in church. I'm not going to get through all of them. So we'll see how we go. Um, And see what this integration over separation, better together culture looks like. Old and young, men and women, married and singles, adults and children. Firstly, old and young. I think the great temptation for us is that we will only ever fellowship with people who are the same age as us. Old people will feel awkward and can't connect with young people. 
and young people will perpetually feel scared uh, and intimidated at talking to older people. That's just kind of, thus has it always been. So what do we do? We create small groups, one-to-ones, prayer triplets, discipling relationships, only with people of the same age as us. Again, I want to say that there is a place for that. It's not altogether wrong. But if that becomes our primary option, our primary approach, here are the risks. People who are in the same age bracket tend to share the same blind spots. I like Proverbs 19.2, even zeal is not good without knowledge. Zeal and knowledge, they kind of go together, don't they? There are young guys who I meet in uni ministry, so passionate for the gospel. But whoever decided that it would be a good idea to take three 21-year-old guys all struggling with a pornography addiction, chucking them together with no one else there who could help them, I'm just not sure it was a very fruitful idea. Actually, think about the blessing they could have had with an older brother and uncle who would come alongside them in that. Or, and I'm not saying this is the case, I'm just, I'm conscious of my age here, so I'm just, right? Um, Think about a small group of people in their 60s who are jaded and cynical about life and church. Maybe. Imagine the benefit of a younger person coming alongside with energy, with optimism, with, with, with that zeal. What, what a blessing that could be. I, mean, I would love it if as a church we've got a culture where it's normal for older and younger Christians to be deep in the word together. For younger Christians to seek out the wisdom of older men and women. And for older Christians to serve alongside younger men and women with the same zeal and passion. Now, I want to say it is normal, probably right, to have more friends who are your own age, right? If a 60-year-old man is best friends with a 21-year-old girl, you're kind of like, bit weird, probably not appropriate. But if they were in the same BLT, the same small group, and they were going deep in the word together with a group of other people, if he could be something like of an uncle to her, at the right time to come alongside her and help her with things, what, what a wonderful picture that would be. I just love it that in 1 Timothy 2, you see um, <coughs> uh, Paul write to Timothy and he calls him. Now, Paul has no kids of his own. And he calls Timothy my true son in the faith. Je- literally, my legitimate son in the faith. You could not be more real than being in the family of God. Or in Romans 16, Paul writes, Greet Rufus, chosen of the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. That's beautiful. The, the fact that actually we can be a family. So we want our ministry teams to model old and young people serving side by side for the gospel. We want our BLTs, generally speaking, our small groups to not be locked by age. Now, I want to say every BLT, every will have a waiting. You will probably have W-E-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Um, you will probably have, also waiting is taking a long time, um, but you will probably have some groups that will gear towards more uni students. Some groups that will be more geared towards people over 60s. But I think we want to be careful about locking groups to say you cannot join unless you fit a certain demographic. Now, I think there'll be a place for things like young mums groups, but that's not, that's not the same. There's, that's meaning a specific need. That's the sort of situation where you would use the specialised ministry. I think we actually want to find in our church life, in our culture and our constructs, integration is preferable because we are better together. Secondly, um, one that I really want to hit today, uh, men and women. This is probably the most sensitive set of relationships to address in church and culture. 
but I'm going to wade through the landmine field, and you can, if I blow off a leg or two, just forgive me, okay? Um, I'll do my best. I think the world has always sought to pit men and women against each other. I think thus has it always been. In fact, thus has it been since Genesis 3. He said to the woman, I'll intensify your labor pains and you'll bear children with painful effort. And here it is. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he'll rule over you. Now, that's not a sexual desire. If you read Genesis 4, it's a desire to assume his place in an ungodly way. But the husband will rule over you. That's bad as well. That's not godly leadership. That's that's heavy-handed ruling. What you've got right from the beginning is a situation where actually men and women are set against each other. And if you look at the history of the world, the trend historically has been men domineering over women. And I'd suggest in culture recently, the corrective has probably swung the other way in a way that doesn't justify anything. But I'm just saying that they are pitted against each other in culture. And I think the sexual revolution has corrupted every form of intimacy. We see two people intimate with one another in perfectly appropriate ways, and we immediately think it's erotic. They must be sleeping together. They must be interested in each other. And there is no space left for actually appropriate levels of closeness and love in a family. It's awful, actually. We've over-sexualized everything. And here's where I think the church has made the uh, misstep. In response or reaction to an over-sexualized culture, what we do is we go, well, they won't sin if we just put them on different ends of the hall. If we separate men and women, then we minimize the risk that the over-sexualized culture will come in and actually they'll sin against or with one another. So we create women's only ministries and men's only ministries. We see a guy walk from that end of the hall to talk to a girl on that end of the hall. We go, ha-ha, he must be interested. Someone said to me, um, I only ever talk with women at church if it's about a ministry thing. Otherwise, I just have a rule. I do not talk to women at church. I'm not sure that's helpful. And I actually think here's the irony. In seeking to avoid the over-sexualized culture, we've actually bought into it. But it controls us by fear. Because when we see someone of the opposite gender, we see a threat. <laughs> not a brother. Not a sister. I was talking to a friend at another church, and he said to me, I make it a policy in my life that my wife is my only friend. I have no female friends. Ever my way of loving my wife. I thought, oh, kind of sweet, maybe. But it makes a few assumptions, doesn't it? It assumes, firstly, that every other woman is out there to tempt you. <laughs> Secondly, it assumes that she would want to tempt you, which is a very big assumption. Um, but thirdly, it actually treats her without the love and respect she deserves as your sister. It's also not very complimentary to your wife. The way I'll love you is by mistreating everyone else. It's a scorch the earth, last person standing sort of love. And I think I worry that churches are bought into it too much. Friends, our, our convictions as a church are clear. 
We believe men and women are created equal in dignity and value, and yet at the same time, in good and glorious ways, have different roles in the family and the church. The, the techie word is we're complementarian, which has a lot of baggage. But can I be very clear? Complementarianism cannot be separationism. You just can't not talk to each other. That's not complementary. It's inbuilt into the word. Complementarianism needs to be a partnership, not apartheid, right? I mean, we, we divide people so much. You see, I, we want to foster a culture, actually, where, women, where men and women disciple one another in Christ-like love. Now, I know what you're thinking. Adam, are you suggesting that men and women should do one-to-ones together? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Titus 2 shows us a good vision of that, actually. But the Great Commission, do you realize, is not gender-locked. It does not say, go and make disciples of people of the same gender and avoid everyone else. Missionaries don't go and just go, oh, well, I'm only... Well, actually, in certain cultural contexts, they may focus, as it were. But do you realize that the 56 one-anothers of the New Testament are not gender-locked as well? Love one another, honor one another, comfort one another, bear one another's burdens, care for one another, um, confess sins to one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, instruct one another, teach and admonish slash warn one another, applies between brothers and sisters as well. That's not just some, oh, I will only do this with the brothers. Sisters, good luck. You know, like, it's not, uh, I don't think that's a very helpful thing. Now, remember, don't mishear what I'm saying. 1 Timothy 5.1, your gender does make a difference to how we do these things together. But it must not mean that we don't do these things for one another. You see, friends, Titus 2 shows us how everyday discipling relationships ought to be between men and men and women and women. Please, please don't start reading deeply one-to-one with someone of the opposite gender. That is probably not wise. We need to pursue relationships that choose wisdom over foolishness. So don't be dumb about it. And yet, at the same time, trust over fear. Trust over fear. People tell me, Adam, but there's a risk something might go wrong. Well, there's always a risk that something might go wrong. And I'm not saying be blind to that. But, but 1 Timothy 5, 1, right? This is what always happens, right? People read that, younger, exhort younger women as sisters with all purity. And one person will go, aha, we can be close. We're a family. So I'm going to be blind to the fact that she's... And no, actually, Paul was wise in writing to Timothy saying, with all purity, be conscious of how you relate to her. But the other side will go, aha, with all purity, be gone, step away from me, right? And I'm like, she is your younger sister. How do you hold those two things together? Which side do you err more on? Are you someone who needs to exercise greater wisdom in how you relate to the opposite gender? Or are you actually someone who needs to say, my relationships with the opposite gender are just ruled by fear? No, friends, we want healthy, holy, godly relationships between brothers and sisters, for we are better together. Let me explain what does that mean. It means actually why you may have noticed, rather awkwardly, for a church of about 200 people, we've resisted setting up entire men's and women's ministries. Don't know if that's noticed or not. We, we will hold events for men and women where they are particular to the needs that are there. But we do want to kind of push against this whole idea of men's only spaces, women's only spaces. Again, there are needs, so don't mishear me, there are going to be needs for that where it's appropriate. But generally speaking, to say dudes like to hang out with each other, so let's read the Bible together. I mean, you, you owe something to your sisters as well. Someone said to me um, to justify 
And they were saying this for women's ministries, but I would say this is a bad justification for either one. And they said to me, we should create women's ministries because women just like to hang out together. And I'm like, well, there are good reasons for setting up women's ministries. That's not one of them. I don't think that's one of them. I don't think it's a good thing to set up men's ministries because guys like to hang out together. I think we actually want to set them up because there's a need and there's a purpose and it's specific. But actually, we will serve one another when we're together. We want to encourage a culture of men reading the Bible one-to-one with men, women reading the Bible one-to-one with women. We want to encourage a culture where there's a household of brothers and sisters speaking the truth in love to one another. And we want to set up ministries that will meet the specific needs of men and women, but emphasize actually the deep things that we share in the gospel. Now, I know this is a big issue. Probably got a lot of questions now. Good. Um, what we're going to do, this is the start of a longer conversation. You're not going to figure it out today. That's okay. We've got all the next year and much more. What we're doing is next year and con, we're going to tackle it head on. So we've got God's good design. We've got Rob Smith, Claire Smith, and Susan Ahn coming in. Uh, and we're going to think about what it looks like for men and women to do this together. It's important for us as a church to have this conversation. This is a conversation starter. So go and share with others what you think about this. Feel free to disagree with me. That's also okay. But I do want to say that actually we need to talk about this. Because if we get this right, it is a witness to the world around us. And if we get it wrong, actually it'll be tragic. And I want to say, I'm I'm just going to, if I haven't been more provocative enough, I think if we get it wrong, we will fall into actually one of the big traps that churches have fallen into a lot recently. The number of cases of churches within the denomination FIC that, we're, that I'm talking to, they have to deal with poorly handled divorces, messy marriages, domestic violence, whatever you want, or all of that. It starts here. It actually starts here. If, you, if men and women don't know how to relate to each other before you're married, you're not going to know how to do it when you're married. But if you, need, if you want to learn how to relate to one another, you actually need a relationship. You need to know how to love one another. So one of the things that we're going to do is, at the end of, this con- at the end of that conference, where we're actually going to put out a policy in terms of what we as a church want to see in terms of these relationships, this articulated more clearly, and at the same time, very seriously, something on marriage, divorce, and, and domestic violence as well. That's important for us to pair those things together so we have a consistent witness to the world around us. Let me uh, speed through the rest if I haven't given you enough already. Uh, Marries and singles. We've talked about it a lot and won't spend too much time on this. Look, all that we're saying, you've heard me talk about this endlessly. We don't want a church where married couples are here and the single couples, a uh, single, oh gosh, uh, the single people are over here. Um, we, 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 um, I, look, I know of a church, this is, this is, oh, I'll show you. I know of a church which created a small group only for married couples that was led by the pastor and his wife and every week there was a very well-intentioned sister, she's lovely, but she put up a photo on Facebook every single week showing how happy they were, which is lovely, we're all happy for you. It wasn't this photo, but it, it may look something like that, I don't know, well, like stock image from Unsplash. Um, I, know, I know single women who left that church because they were not allowed into that group. And I said, I don't think we'll do that, but, but I want to avoid that. That, that. that picture, not this picture, but that picture, um, is, 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 is a picture of what we don't want to be, right? I, I, hope that, I hope that we don't fall into the risk of thinking that only single people can help single people. Or only married people can help married people. Where you end up in a situation where married couples never ask their single friends for advice, support, prayer about their marriage. 
Or you end up in a situation where single people go, you know, you used to be my mate, but then you got married and now you've got no credibility at all. It's not, it's not godly, actually. Think about this. If the married couple Priscilla and Aquila can explain the gospel to Apollos together, and if an unmarried man, Paul, can write Ephesians 5 about marriage, then actually we should be able to speak into each other's lives as well. That's, that's a good thing to do. I actually think sometimes the difference is an advantage. It gives, it gives perspective on life. So if you're single, please don't think that your married friends cannot help you. And if you're married, please do not think that your single friends cannot help you. We need each other. Because Sam Aubrey writes, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows its sufficiency. We need those two together. It is why some of our BLTs are co-led by married couples. We want to have a good positive picture of what it looks like for husbands and wives to be serving together in the gospel. That's a good thing. We also want some BLTs, actually, where they're co-led by a man and woman who aren't married in appropriate ways because that, that, that shows brothers and sisters working together for the gospel. We, we are better together. Finally, adults and children, the tsunami. Let's address it head on, then Q&A. Growing up, I always saw the church I was at as a gathering of separate families, right? On Sunday, we'd come together and you'd see the clans gather. You know, the Lim family over there, the Young family over there, the Ang family over there. Noon didn't belong anywhere. Uh, he was an orphan. He wasn't, his parents never came to our church, had no family without father nor mother in our church. So what did, we adopted him. Uh, and he became one of us. Now, why was that a problem? It meant that the primary unit of belonging was not the church. It was actually my own household. It was not God's household. It was my household. Now, as we face the oncoming onslaught of children, we must be very clear about to whom they belong. Who do my children belong to? Well, I want to say, firstly, Ephesians 6, their own parents. Their own, parents bear the primary responsibility for discipling their own kids. You cannot have, kids' ministry does not exist to outsource your parenting or spiritual parenting of your kids. You bear that primary responsibility. But Deuteronomy 6, written to the whole community of God, says that we all bear a responsibility in discipling children as well. So I want to say to parents, yes, it's on you, under God, by the strength of the Spirit, but it's not on you alone. We need you and you need us. And your kids, if I could be so bold to suggest, need the church as well. And I think what the great risk is that any church is that it faces the loss of Deuteronomy 6 and the family almost replaces the church as that primary discipling community. And you see it, don't you? When, when And our, I praise the Lord because, can I say, if you're a parent here in our church, you have done amazing. So I... This is not you, and I, I've loved how you guys have gone about it. But you do see it elsewhere in churches that I've been in, where, where parents, at the moment they become parents, they just disappear off the face of the earth. And it's not for the energy thing. The energy thing is legit, right? I will never kind of, I don't personally get that. That's I don't understand that as it's my experience. But at the same time, you don't want a situation where people just totally step out of church where they stop serving, they stop gathering. Everything becomes about my family rather than God's family. And can I say, that deprives us of the opportunity to care for you as parents. It deprives us of the opportunity to disciple your child. But it also deprives your child of the opportunity to be discipled by a broader range of people. You cannot do it alone. And just like with marriages and singles, we want adults who are not parents 
to help you as parents just as much as other parents. Does that make sense? If someone doesn't have kids of their own, they can actually help you in raising your child. I know of a church which celebrated Mother's Day. It was lovely. They gave a flower out to every mother who walked through the front door. The lady came to the front door. The usher gave her a flower, paused and said, oh, wait, no, you're not a mother. And then she took the flower back. Ministry team leader, tough conversation. Um, We all know that gut reaction is not good, don't we? we? We all feel it. But it is what happens when we go, our biological family is the ultimate reality. Throughout the scriptures, you see all sorts of spiritual parenting taking place. Can I say, children are a blessing of the, uh, the Lord. And we see kids as members of God's family. I know there's a whole range of views in our church on should you baptize, should you dedicate, how do you, all of that. That's okay. Guess what? I'm in a good mood. We're ripping off a lot of band-aids next year. Uh, we're devoting our annual doctrine series. There's a the flower. Looks very sad. Um, we're our da- annual doctrine series to baptism and the people of God. Why? It's good for us to talk about. I've been clear, you know where our church stands on it, that's okay. But let's, let's have a conversation about what that looks like for us in our diversity, actually, to share in, to actually share the deep things that we do share. And what does that look like together? Let me wrap up. Um, integration over separation, both as old and young, men and women, married and single, adult and child, we are better together. Let me ask, finally, when you picture a household, what do you picture? If I say family, First thing in your mind is what? Maybe it's, I can't believe I'm doing this. Uh, maybe it's this. Um, maybe this is the household that you think of. Maybe. You can, no, Cedric, put that down. No, that's okay. Uh, you may think of a mum, dad, and two kids. And that's easy to be close and intimate and loving because you all know each other, right? But it stuffs our expectations at church, doesn't it? Because when church has 200 people, not four people, you're like, gosh, how do I do that? How do I do this integration over separation thing? How am I supposed to know every single old and young and man and woman at church? It's just so hard because we think of that. Can I suggest, actually, when you think about households, you should think more like this. My dad is somewhere in there. He's one of the younger ones there. Uh, they all lived in the same compound. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's 44 people there. 44 people there. And this, that's not even close to what a biblical household was. A household in the New Testament was over 100 people. It had the extended family. It had servants. It had non, non-biological relatives. It was messy. It was big. Now, when you think about that, it means that you, you would still love everyone there. No doubt that everyone said loves it. You, you would hope that they would actually just genuinely have relationships of love there. But you know it would look different. But you still love them. So you, you think to yourself, okay, I would relate to my sister, my cousin, my uncle, or my grandfather, all with love, but all in different ways. So I can hang out with... This means a girl should be able to hang out with a boy in the family without the fear of being hurt. It means that I may not hang out with my auntie who spends most of her time with her sisters, but I could go to her for advice. I might really talk to my great-grandfather, the terrifying-looking boss man, um, but I know that if I ever needed to, 
I could go to him. Friends, I suspect that is something closer to what the picture Paul is painting in 1 Timothy 5. Integration, not separation, not over a small nuclear family, but over a growing household. Friends, you won't know everyone at church. You don't. I don't don't think even I do. I'm doing pretty okay. But that's okay. Because if we make church all 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 about who I know, then I'm putting myself at the center of church. We need to put Jesus at the center of the church. You might not know everyone at church, but please make an effort that who you do know in different ways reflects the diversity of the body that we have in Christ. That's what we want for our church. A big and broad household of God that shows our broken world a beautiful picture of true belonging for all people in Christ. There you go. There's a conversation starter for the next year. Probably got some things wrong. Ask for your forgiveness. I just want to kind of put that out there. And then I want us to think together about what this might look like. I'm going to pray. We're going to, be, we're going to sing uh, praises to God for who we are as his people. And then you can ask questions. One night, pray. Gracious God, we know that this is a tricky area to navigate. We know that who we are in our uh, differences and the things that we share are hard to bring together at times. But God, we know that in the Lord Jesus, you adopt so many different people into your family. You, you call us to be together. You say the most important thing about us is not our age or our gender or, or, our, or our stage in life or our ethnic background. What matters most is you. And what matters most is your son. And we pray, God, that we might be one in him, together in him, and loving one another in Christ and Christ alone. God, we declare these things, knowing, God, that you have saved us and saved us out of darkness and into light and made us brothers and sisters in this family. For these things, we thank you. And for these things, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.